Uh, hi, my name's Paul Matthews, and you're listening to the Academy Developing Practice podcast. Hello, in this episode, myself, Matthew Davies, an organisational developer, and Alex Owen, an academic developer, sat down with Paul Matthews, CEO and founder of People Alchemy, and previous guest on our podcast. In this episode, we discussed Paul's latest thinking about the four invisible elements of learning and development. We hope you enjoy. Hi, Paul. It's great to be meeting with you again. So this being your second visit to the podcast, I won't start by asking you about your background, you know, your your background of farming in New Zealand and so on, because the listeners I'm sure would have already heard that. But I will ask you a quick question to get us started. So um, what's the best piece of advice you have ever been given, Paul? <laughs> oh, wow. God, you do put people on the spot, don't you? Mm. Um, ah... I, if, well, if I go for a personal one, is is muddy water will settle, so wait for clarity. So if, if there's kind of everything's all a bit muddled up and mixed up, like a bowl of muddy water, if you just put it to one side for a while, it will settle. And I think that's something that has served me well over time, is, is when I get all confused or... Um, running around in circles about something is often it's best to just let the muddy water settle wait for clarity that's a good analogy that one i can relate to that when i'm thinking about um also sending it sending an angry email or something like that because when i I don't know all the facts i could i should wait for all that to settle down first Yeah, I, w- I was thinking of exactly that. And even like, just don't respond to that email in the evening. <laughs> just wait and respond in the morning when things are a bit clearer in your head. Um, yeah. It's good advice. We, I mean, if you, you can take that analogy further and, and, and say, well, actually, we are by our nature, clear water. And, and if you just let us be a little bit, we return to our nature, which is clarity and, and, and a clear water. So the mud is is an anomaly in us in a sense um so that's another way to sort of think about it as well yeah brilliant well we're um talking about another analogy today we're actually talking about elephants which i didn't think was a topic we'd ever cover on this podcast um but i love elephants so that Mm. works well for me um but these are elephants that you refer to, Paul, as elephants in the room which stop learning and teaching development being effective. Um, can you explain to us a little bit about what they are? Um, well, elephants are large pachyderms, you know. <laughs> um, the, Apart from that. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. Um, the, the term comes from when I was writing my third book on learning transfer, I started referring to learning transfer as an elephant in the room for learning and development and that a lot of L&D people will go ahead and do training and actually pay little or no attention at all to how that training will transfer into the workflow and make a, a, an effective difference in people's performance. Um, and, and then I started thinking, well, if there's one elephant in the room, maybe there's others. And I started uh, looking around and realized the first two books I'd written um, were also about elephants. So I'd been writing about elephants for years, but never knew it. Um, and, then, and then I came up with a fourth elephant, um, as well as the, the, three that, uh, the three books. 
and I call the fourth one a sneaky elephant because I do not want to write a book on it. So we've got four <laughs> elephants in there, but one of them is a bit sneaky. So let's dive a little deeper into the first elephant, which you state as learning transfer because that was the book you were writing at the time. Well, why is it that many traditional development activities done in the classroom or online fail to be turned into behaviour change back in the workplace? Uh, a, I've got a dozen different reasons in the book, but I think one of them at a sort of a high level is accountability. Um, right. that, that when you do a training course, who is accountable for making sure that training course has an impact on subsequent behavior change? And the answer is usually nobody in the sense that it's, 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 it's requested by management. The people get metaphorically thrown over the fence to L and D to go and do this learning outside of the workflow and they get thrown back over the fence and, and no one is sitting on top of that whole operation to say, well, how do we make sure that we're getting value and a return on our investment in doing this learning? So I think there's a whole spread of different responsibilities. If you look at uh, Dr. Ina Weinbauer Heidel's work um, um, on, on learning transfer, she did a massive research project as part of, an, uh, of a PhD and came up with um, 12 levers, uh, a 12 lever model. And if you look at those 12 levers, what's interesting is there's actually no one person or one stakeholder can pull all of those levers. So it needs to be a collaborative effort to generate learning transfer across a, a number of different stakeholders. And of course, if you've got a number of different people who are responsible for something, but no one overseeing them who's accountable, then you end up not getting uh, a lot of stuff done that should be done. And so therefore things just don't work so well. Um, so informal learning is the second elephant, um, the 70-20-10 model, which is the model which has been developed by McCall et al. Um, and subsequent research tells us that in most cases, development comes from experience, feedback and traditional courses or reading. So can you tell us, Paul, how can teams really harness this model to encourage increased individual performance? The 70-20-10 model is an interesting one. It's been around a while. Um, and it's one of those models that I kind of like, but I also kind of hate mm -hmm. um, the reason. So I'm a bit ambivalent towards it. I like it because it directs our attention where it needs to be directed, which is onto the vast majority of learning that happens. And for those who don't know the model, it posits that around 70% of what we know to do our job, we learned on the job somewhere. Around 20% of what we know to do our job, we learned through collaboration through stories, through talking to others uh, and social interaction. And around 10% we learned um, in some kind of formal planned scheduled scenario, whether that's a training course or, or an e-learning course um, or a conference or something that we've gone specifically to learn. Um, and if you stop and think for a moment, uh, how you learn most of what you do to do your job, most people say, well, yeah, those figures don't sound unreasonable. Uh, someone who's clearly new into a role, they will require a lot more formal stuff. Someone who's been around in a role a long time will actually still be learning things, but almost everything they learn will be informally on the job as they go through their experience. Mm. Um, and, and so it directs our attention where most learning happens. However, those figures vary immensely depending on when there's someone out there who says it's 30, 30, you know, third, a third, a third, 
uh, other people say, well, actually, no, it's 95% informal. And it kind of depends on what type of learning you put in what bucket. So that's where it starts getting messy as people start saying the numbers are critical and they're not. It's, it's a bit like the old Pareto principle, the 80-20 rule. No one thinks yeah. those figures are accurate, but we mm. just use it as a way of focusing attention. So yeah. that's what the 70-20-10 model is good for. Where I, where I don't like it is where learning and development departments and, and managers and anybody else in an organization starts using it to beat up people in a certain way to start saying, well, therefore we must do our learning in this way because there's a recipe for success. That's just absolutely not true. Um, the other thing that I find is that organizations will sometimes say, oh, we better get our informal learning engine started because, you know, that's what we need. And I will have missed the point at, at completely because, of course, these were figures that were pulled together from um, some questionnaires and some actually fairly basic low statistical sample research. Um, and, and it's what was happening. So it's not like you need to start it because it's already there. But yeah. what you can do is harness it. You can say, well, if that's where most learning is happening, how can we get involved with the learning that's mostly happening out there in the workflow? How can we get involved in that and improve it and enhance it and harness it? Um, because informal learning is, an, it, it's the way we learn naturally, by the way. I mean, that's, it was around long before training courses. I mean, hundreds of thousands of years. So that, you know, the, the training course is a relatively recent thing. Um, but our neurology and, and how we're set up is to learn informally as we go through life. And we learn vast amounts of stuff informally. I mean, we learn how to run a household, but no one ever taught you to do that, but you know how to do it. So where did you learn it? Um, so have you got any tips for us in terms of how we could harness that kind of informal learning that takes place, particularly in our sector in HE, um, with a view to increasing individual performance? Well, it's no different in HE than any other organization if you're talking about staff development um, mm -hmm. rather than student development. Um, the, it, it, and it's about managers need to be aware that the majority of learning that is happening uh, for any employee or staff member is happening on that manager's watch. So they better be involved with it. Sure. Um, if they're not involved with it, then they're actually missing a vital part of their role as a manager. So it's in other words saying, getting uh, uh, some awareness of when people are learning. Um, and, and it's also about sometimes not using the word learning is actually saying, how are they gathering experience? Because a lot of people in management use the word experience when what they really mean is informal learning or vice versa. Mm -hmm. um, so when you say to someone, we need to get informal learning sorted out, they'll say, well, yeah, whatever because that sounds like jargon. Whereas we need to make sure people have the right experience so they can respond appropriately in the next time they, you know, need that kind of skill. They'll say, yeah, yeah, well, I'm up for that. You know, we need to experience yeah. matters. And when I'm hiring people, I'll hire someone with five years experience because I think that that five years has got five years of informal learning in it. So it's often about how you uh, talk about things to people, but also you say, well, within my team, where do they go when they've got a problem? How do they find out something? In the moment, how do they get support for doing things? Um, you know, how does their experience play out? What are they learning from the way they are experiencing how they're doing their work? And can I make sure those experiences are better, more memorable, um, better supported with online tools and resources and electronic performance support, those kind of things. 
So, so yeah, so, so that, I, I, another way to think about informal learning, by the way, it's a side effect of life. You cannot live and not learn. Yeah, I really like the, uh, the, the idea of bringing awareness around that to managers to help them to increase the performance or however you term it, of their own teams, just by understanding that that is happening and giving them the, the ability to, uh, for want of a better word, scaffold that informal learning to make sure that they uh, can, can induce a culture of it. So that's a really good tip. Thanks for that. And I guess I suppose the other thing that I was just thinking about is it all depends on where you are in your journey. I really think that learning and development teams or OD teams really need to think about that in terms of uh, somebody who's brand new into the institution, doesn't have much work experience at all. They might require a 30, 30, 40 approach or sort of something slightly different. That doesn't mean everybody in the, in the institution needs that. There'll be people that who have been there for a long amount of time will be 90, you know, 90, 90, 10, zero. Um, and just having a sort of understanding of you, we shouldn't force feed everybody the same content um, because not everybody has the same needs. Can, can I make a, a, a comment there about the numbers is, is I think sure. it's a mistake to head into the numbers in the way that you just have personally. Okay. Um, the the reason for that is what you should be doing is looking at someone where they are and saying, what do they need now to perform well? And yeah. then you deliver that. Uh, and if, if, if someone, and that's doing a proper diagnostics process on if they're not performing and, and so on and so forth. So, and then you deliver what they need in whatever way they need it to get them performing better. Someone might well look over the fence and saying, oh, look, you're doing 70, 20, 10, but that's not where you should start from. So don't start with the numbers or think, oh, they're new into the organization, therefore they need more formal um, and they need it in this ratio. So ignore the numbers. They're purely there as a way of focusing attention when you're trying to help someone understand that learning happens in the flow of work. Um, okay, and, yeah, and, good. And, and then actually focus on, well, what does this person need and how do they need it right now to do their job well? Which I guess brings us to relationship, which is, I guess, key to informal learning is fostering opportunity for people to build relationships um, within teams and across the institution as well. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and you're fostering that whole idea of the social aspect there. Um, mm. So, but the thing is, is often don't really even try and call it learning. Just say, you know, what we need to be doing is doing our jobs well. And yeah. as we do our jobs well, we will gain experience. And as part of that experience, we will be learning stuff. But because we are so brilliant at learning as a species, I mean, if we weren't, we'd have been consigned to the evolutionary dustbin a long time ago. Um, so because we're really good at learning, we don't have to think about it. It just happens as we do things. But of course, what can be done is we can set those things up so that people do them in a certain way and hopefully learn certain things from them as they go through them. So in other words, the experiences can be designed and managers can do that when they delegate to people by delegating in a stretch way, for example, to someone, here's a little bit more than you did last time and mm. so on. So, mm. so how a manager delegates can then influence how much someone learns informally when they go through that experience. Um, but it's about them gathering new and more broader experiences rather than saying, you need to learn this. Because I think generally when you offer people learning, that's not actually high on their agenda. Their agenda is much 
more about I want to get the job done in front of me and do it well and easily so I can get home on time. Yeah, they want to be effective. Yeah. So, so <laughs> yeah. whereas if I say here's a bunch of learning, they kind of have to make that translation from that learning into effective performance and not everybody mm. will do that. They say, well, I don't care about that. I just want to get my job done. The third elephant then, which you refer to as the diagnostic piece, um, you know, this is something that the OD team here in Liverpool are doing all the time to try and ensure we have the right development for the right people. Or in, in some cases where we just ensure that we don't put on development um, because actually we can't see that it's fully justified. If you were to give us some, some of your advice on what good uh, learning consulting would be, what, what would that be, Paul? Um, I think I'd get really clear about the separation between what I call performance consultancy and what I call learning consultancy. And what I do find is a okay. lot of learning and development departments um, say they do this kind of consultancy and they align their learning to the business. And as soon as someone says that, I start thinking, hmm, I wonder if they've really got it because there's two stages to this. The first stage is genuine performance consultancy, which is where someone goes in as a consultant and talks to the manager, talks to the team, talks to whoever's presenting the problem and says, right, something's not working here as well as it should. People aren't performing in the way we want them to perform. They're not behaving the way we want them to behave. So what's going on? So it's an open mindset of going in thinking, I don't know yet what the issue is or, and I've got, and because of that, I have no idea what a solution might be. And you need to yeah. go through that process. Now, what I have seen very often in L and D departments, and I don't know enough about yours to obviously make a comment here. So just in general terms is the L and D person will go into that problem situation, talk to the manager, talk to the people, but because they're a learning person, there's an automatic assumption in the back of their mind. They're going to come up with a learning solution. So it's a bit like they've got a hammer, they're just looking for nails. And all they're going to find is nails if that's all they look for. Um, and what you need to do first is go through a performance consultancy process to diagnose the problem effectively and figure out, is an uplift in learning and skills going to help the people perform more effectively and do what we want them to do? And actually, 70 to 80% of the time, that is not the problem. The problem in most performance is happening because of the environment within which that person is actually operating. In other words, the environment is limiting their yeah. ability to perform well and be capable at the point of work. And it's not a lack of knowledge or skills. Now, sometimes it will be, but often it's not. And if you just think over the last month of jobs you tried to do that you didn't manage to do on time or to quality or whatever that you wanted to do them, in other words, you failed to perform in some way. Most of the time, you actually probably knew what to do, but your lack of performance was due to something outside of yourself. Circumstances, a train late, your laptop breaking down, a meeting didn't happen, someone filed the paper in the wrong place. <laughs> you know, who knows? There's so many things that go yeah, wrong in your control or not. And then the question becomes is, well, if I just sent you off on a training course, it wouldn't fix 80% of the times that you are not performing because it's not really a knowledge and skills issue. So very often we end up sending people mm. on training courses because we have quote unquote aligned the learning with the organizational needs. But what's not been done is that initial performance consultancy step to determine whether training is even on the table as a potential solution to the problem. 
Okay, and then Paul, you talked earlier a little bit about the sneaky elephant, which I like the idea of. Um, and I think you've in the past referred to this as the kind of brand of the um, development team. And we in the academy have been looking at this a bit in terms of working on our brand. Um, and we've started to see this paying dividends in terms of the types of requests we're now getting um, for learning and development. So can you just tell us um, what could a team do to improve the brand for specifically large organizations? Okay, well, I think the first thing to talk about is what is brand? Because in order to improve something, you've got to be able to measure it and saying, well, is what we're doing making a difference to what we're trying to change? So you've got to think carefully about what the brand is. And there's actually two different things going on here. There's brand and reputation, which are highly correlated, but different. Mm -hmm. So the brand of L&D is your, uh, a simple definition I like to use. It's the promise you're making to your constituents. In other words, this is who we are and this is our promise to you. And if you think of any of the sort of big consumer brands out there, when you think of the brand, there's an effect you're thinking, ah, that's their promise to me about what they provide, whether that's fast food or a, a sickly sweet drink or whatever it happens to be. Um, so a brand is about the promise you've made and you can do marketing to affect the brand um, to, to, to talk about, well, what is your promise? Now, alongside that, there's your reputation. And your reputation comes from all the touch points you have with the different people that you interact with. And that's both at first hand and second hand. So the touch points could be the e-learning system. It could be a training course. It could be um, booking onto a training course. It, um, now, the other place that when I say second hand, it could be, for example, a manager doing an appraisal um, who is then actually talking about learning and development options as a result of following that appraisal. In other words, L&D gets involved, but is being used at second hand by that manager. So how they present those L&D options will have an impact on the reputation of L&D. And of course, yeah. collectively over time, those um, different touch points, whether they're first or second hand, will have an impact on the brand promise. And what you don't want is for that impact to then um, be in tension with the, if the brand promise is X, and the reputation says, well, no, it's why you've got a problem because there's a mismatch and people will then not believe either effectively, or they will default to believing their own experience of the touch points. So that's a bit more about brand. And of course, if, um, if the brand is not good or perceived as, as not helpful uh, or the reputation is not good, uh, Jeff Bezos uses the term, what do people say about you when you're not in the room? So that's a good way of kind of judging what's going on. Um, the other way to judge what's going on is you mentioned it earlier is when the business comes to us in L and D for something, what are they asking for? Are they just asking for a training course and expect us to just deliver like a shopkeeper? Mm -hmm. Or are they asking us to say, I have a performance problem here. Can you help me dig into it and figure out what's going on? And in a sense, that's the ideal because then you're heading into performance consultancy territory and you may well be in a position once you've done that to say, well, hang on, training isn't going to help you here, so we can't help you. You need to go yeah. over there to operations or whatever, because that's where the problem lies. Um, so just because someone comes to L&D doesn't mean that there has to be an L&D solution to it. Um, but of course, that touch point will, hopefully you leave them going away from that touch point with more information than they came and thinking, ah, those guys in L&D know what they're talking about and they've pointed me in the right direction to solve this problem, 
even though it wasn't something that they could provide directly because it's become obvious it's no longer an L&D type of solution. So, but in, so those are the things. So you can improve all your touch points and you have to figure out, I want a, a full list of every touch point that L&D has with any constituent internal or external to the organization, every single one, and then the secondhand ones. And then also think about, well, what is the brand promise? And partly you can go out and ask people, what do you think of this? What does L&D do is a good question. And that'll give you a sense of what they think you do and what they're liable to come and ask for. And usually what I find is that L&D can do far more and would like to do far more than what it's actually doing. And largely that's a result of a limiting brand because people just don't want or won't come to you for the things you could do if they only knew you could do it. And you talk about this being the sneaky elephant. Is that because if you think we don't get this right, then um, our work isn't effective? Do you think that this is like the biggest ele elephant in terms of this kind of comes first and then everything else comes from this? Um, there's two reasons I'm calling it sneaky. One is because <laughs> I don't want to write a fourth book. Um, <laughs> and if it's only a sneaky <laughs> elephant, it doesn't deserve a book. Okay. Um, and three is enough for a trilogy anyway, in my opinion. <laughs> But the other reason is that it's sneaky is that people are not even aware they've got a brand. So this elephant is yeah. so ephemeral in the L&D room that most L&D people are completely unaware of the elephant. Even when you point it out to them, they kind of look at it and still don't even see it because they're mm -hmm. so unaware of the concept of brand in general. And yet your, your brand or the L&D brand has a massive impact on how effective you can be in an organization because it's about your credibility. It's about all sorts of things. It's about, well, when will people come to us? At the beginning of a change program or as an afterthought at the end? You know, your brand will dictate which of those it is. Clearly, you want them at the beginning. Yeah, but if the so brand true. is bad, they yeah. won't talk to you until the last minute. Oh, well, we better get L&D involved because we might need some training on this big computer rollout. <laughs> I know. Yeah. So, so the brand, it, it's sneaky because of the fact that people are such are so unaware of it. Now, you, you also mentioned, well, does it come first or second? You know, which elephant is, you know, which one's holding the other one's tail? <laughs> the, the, they don't really line up like that. But in effect, if you want to change the brand, you have to fix the first three elephants. Because right. it's very difficult to change your brand if you don't change the way you're doing things and change those touch points. Um, so there's a, um, a large retail chain in this company I did some work for and some workshops with. And they said that, that and, and I was actually working with them on, on the performance consultancy stuff and teaching them processes around that. Um, and, and within a couple of weeks, they said their brand had noticeably shifted in the organization because people were coming to them asking different questions yeah. as a result of the previous touch points they'd had yeah. after I taught them that new process. So brand can shift very, very quickly. Um, and, but, but what won't happen is if you change the logo and change the name of the department, that's not the brand. Sure. And, and so, you've, so you've got to actually start looking at what I'm doing. And now the only way you can do that effectively, by the way, is to take a step back into what is the value proposition of us as a supplier to our, our constituent customers. So do a full value proposition exercise around what products and services can we offer of value to our customers within the organization. And I've, I do run value proposition exercises with, with some L&D teams and they find it incredibly enlightening. But it's something that most L&D people 
value proposition? Well, what even is that? You know, so, um, so the, yeah, it's a, a real, different world to them, isn't it? That's the sneaky one is just because it's just so kind of unknown and yet vital part of how effective L&D can be. So how do those elephants, Paul, um, sort of reflect or how do they work with uh, learning and development or the OD strategy? Um, well, the, the, the strategy is something that needs to be in place for an L&D or an OD department. I'm used to calling it L&D. I know that you have slightly <laughs> different names at the university. Um, the, and, and really, that's kind of what game are we in and how are we playing it? But I get to see a lot of different L&D strategies, and they vary immensely in the terms of the detail, the depth, the, the breadth, and what they're doing, and what they're uh, recommending, and, and where, which direction they're taking L&D departments in. But ultimately, they need to be servicing, obviously, the larger corporate vision and strategy. But one of the, the, the tests I ask people to do with a strategy is get a highlighter pen and go through it and highlight any uh, lines or mentions in there of any of these four elephants. And very often I'll get to the end of a strategy and there's nothing highlighted or very little. The one that's most common, if it's there at all, is the informal learning one. And they say, oh, we, you know, we're going to adopt a 70-20-10 approach to our, our learning delivery or something like that. Yeah. Um, so, and, and basically what I'm saying is unless all four elephants are embedded into the strategy, then you've got a problem because you're not really going to be advancing and moving forward. Because the other thing that needs to be part of that strategy is developing the learning culture in the organization. And the learning culture won't move forward and advance and improve without all of those elephants being dealt with effectively. Um, so, so there's a need to, to look at that uh, at a strategic level. And then how am I going to publish that strategy to the people out there in organization land who kind of need to know what we're doing because that strategy that you publish actually becomes part of your brand promise in what you're saying, this is who we are, this is what we stand for, and this is how we are going to achieve it for you. So is that strategy um, complete? Is it, are there big holes in it? And how do we publish it? And, and that might mean you might have different versions of the strategy, by the way, because the one you publish will be a non-jargon external version of it for general consumption in the organization you might well then have your own more detailed L&D strategy internally, which can well be full of L&D jargon. Um, you <laughs> might also need actually another one which gets signed off at the senior level. Um, so you're, you're very likely to end up with several versions of a strategy kicking around, uh, depending on who the audience is. Still the same things inherent in the strategy, but just different versions worded differently. Um, so, uh, and that strategic idea actually fits across strategies for any department, but certainly in L&D, I think the elephants need to be uh, catered for in the strategy, let's say. <laughs> right. Now I've got to run away and check our strategy. I've got to look for four elephants. Um, <laughs> and then I've got to make sure I remove any jog, L&D jog, and of which there's lots um, out, of, out of that strategy. Um, so, yeah, my manager's going to love me for this one. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thanks, thanks Paul. Paul. There's, there's been loads in that conversation um, that colleagues from professional services and also ac academics can reflect on and think about in terms of their practice to do with learning and development. Um, we like to finish each podcast asking um, our guests for three or four kind of take home tips for our listeners to think about in terms of the work that they do. So if you could leave us with some thoughts, what would they be? 
Um, I think, well, I obviously have three or four tips. I'm going to talk about three or four elephants. Um, <laughs> oh, by the way, um, one tip for elephants, they don't like the sound of buzzing bees. So you can actually put speakers up around your crop with sound of swarming bees and the elephants won't go near the crop. So uh, you probably can't do that too much with the L&D elephants. But, um, but for training, think about afters. Think about what's got to happen after a training course because actually the training course itself is a small part of the program that should be in place. And it's the afters, what do people need to do differently? How do I need that behavior to change? And how do I sustain and embed that behavior over the long term? So there's a huge amount of activity. So if you have like a one day training, you should be talking about maybe a four day program spread over six months. And only one day of that four day program is in yeah. the classroom. The rest of it yeah. is stuff that has to happen a little bit before perhaps, but certainly a lot after the training program to get people doing things differently. And this is where um, the nudge stuff we talked about in the other podcast comes in about getting people changing their behavior. Um, the other thing that I would highly recommend certainly for managers is to think twice about assuming that training is the answer to a performance problem. So you need to go through a proper performance diagnostics process to say of all the things that might be getting in the way of the performance that I'm looking for, what are those different barriers and get really clear about whether those barriers are environmental that surround the person. So for example, if someone doesn't have a spare part, they can't fix the car. That's an environmental barrier. They might be perfectly competent to fix the car as a mechanic, but they can't fix it because the spare part's missing. So right in the moment, they're incapable. So just because someone is incapable of doing a job right now, that doesn't mean they don't know how to do it. It just means right now they're not capable for some reason. And you have to figure out what that reason is. And just saying, well, they're stupid and they don't know what to do is not necessarily the answer. Um, occasionally it might be just they're ignorant they just don't know what to do in which case training might well be a solution or some other performance support tool so I think it's about thinking twice about assuming that training is an answer is is a, a thing I'd recommend so that's only a couple of tips but I think those are pretty key ones yeah, yeah no, that's really helpful thank you yeah thanks for your time today Paul thank you very much brilliant all the best and uh, we'll talk to you again sometime It was lovely to speak to Paul again and to hear his thinking around those four invisible elephants of learning and development. What I really enjoyed about what he was saying was um, thinking about the afters, what comes after CPD and after a kind of learning and development event. So when we're involved with some kind of training, do we build in time to actually think about how can I embed this learning in an authentic way? Or do we just attend the learning and teaching events and then kind of move on with our usual um, practice? So that's something that I'm going to think about, about building extra time in after some kind of CPD to really um, hopefully embed what I've learned. Yeah, absolutely. It, it reminds me of the firework analogy that um, goes around in, in development circles where you might put on learning and development events and they sort of go up like a firework, but they fizzle away to, to nothing. And the important thing, obviously, for, for development teams is to do something which produces long-lasting change, behavioural change. Paul gave us some other great insights as well into the issues that face many development teams up and down the country. 
He referenced the 12 levers to learning transfer model from Dr. Einer Weinbauer Heidel, which shows that no one person can pull all of those levers at the same time. And therefore, learning transfer needs to be a collaborative effort across all stakeholders to be effective. Yeah, there's loads in that and lots for us to to think about in terms of how we want to develop our own practice in response to it. If you'd like to take your thinking further, then we've added some further resources to the website on a specific reading list for this podcast. And you can access that at liverpool.ac.uk forward slash the hyphen academy forward slash podcast. So please do check out those resources. Do let us know what you thought about this episode. You can tweet us at liveuniacademy and you can also find us at elearnermat or at Alexandra underscore Owen on Twitter. And we're really grateful for those who have taken the time to either rate or review our show in your podcast providers app. So if you're an Apple user, please do take the time to review our show as it will help others find us. Bye for now. Bye for now.